Margaret Witten was a wise woman. That's the sense we have after finishing her foreword to the memoir of a longtime friend, Sincerely Ty Cobb, a baseball memoir by Hank O'Neill. Witten was a noted actor, director, and baseball aficionado, and also a player of the game herself. Knowing Hank, knowing human nature, good actor and director that she was, and of course knowing baseball as she did, Margaret Witten asks key questions as we round the bases of the book before us, given the fact that young Hank will be telling us about baseball, about his pen pal, the baseball great Ty Cobb, and something about post-war America. Here's what Witten asks. What in young Hank's carefully polite letter made Mr. Mean of baseball respond? Was it the mention of Hank's grandfather? Was it Ty Cobb trying to write the slurs of the sports writers? What in Hank's longing letter to a hero out of the hundreds he must have received made Cobb, the most demonically driven competitor, respond? Witten also has been and has developed keen insights into why young Hank might have picked up his pen then to write his ba- baseball heroes and now to share this Tychobian-centered tale and come full circle, finally finishing the exchange. We're reminded of the unfinished games of his youth, broken off just like that, only to be picked up hours later, perhaps with a certain urgency as night is falling. The most succinct way to say it is that Hank O'Neill's career has included the worlds of government, education, music, especially jazz, photography, and literature. He's a serious photographer who worked with the noted American photographer Bernice Abbott for nearly 20 years. But it's through music that we know him. O'Neill has built two recording studios over his lifetime, produced over 200 jazz LPs and CDs, and formed two record companies, one of which is Chiaroscuro, which he and his partner, Andrew Sordoni, Doni, presented to WVIA. And we had a chance to talk baseball and much more during Hank O'Neill's most recent visit to the WVIA studios to sort through the voluminous Chiaroscuro archives. All I ever wanted to be you know, some little boys want to grow up and be firemen or, or whatever. <laughs> I wanted to grow up and be a baseball player. And I was okay. I wasn't really good, but I was okay. And I, I played all the time in Texas. And, and then when we moved to Indiana, I got to play some more. And Indiana was wonderful because we lived in married students' housing. And we were all real poor. The, the place where we lived cost $35 a month. And it didn't even have a refrigerator. It had an ice box where the ice man came and put a block of ice in it and stuff. But everybody there was equally poor. And we all had a baseball and we all had a bat and we had a really wonderful time. And then they up and moved us to Syracuse when my father got a, a job finally. And we, we moved to a side of town that didn't have any kids particularly. And I was in a junior high school in the eighth grade and there was no baseball team or anything. But in the apartment complex where we lived, uh, 
a baseball player lived there. His name was Benny Zentera. He played for the Syracuse Chiefs, which was a triple-A baseball team, a good baseball team. But still, I, I didn't have any little friends that I could play baseball with. I'd always collected bubblegum cards from when I was little. I could, you know, scrape together 10 cents, and for 10 cents you could buy two nickel packs. And, you know, I saved all these bubblegum cards, and I started getting interested in looking at old magazines and baseball players and old players and stuff like that, and continued to do so when I was in in the, the eighth grade. And I started writing to baseball players. I would first go to the MacArthur Stadium in Syracuse. We were a triple-A baseball team, which was just one stop below the major leagues. And so there were players that you could get their autographs, and you'd stick a piece of paper through the fence, and they'd sign them. Or they'd pose for a picture, or you would you could ride downtown on the bus because they were poor. They were just minor league players, and they had to take the bus downtown. They didn't have cars or taxis. They'd take the bus. So you could ride on the bus with the players downtown. I remember one time going to the Hotel Onondaga and finding a guy who played for Montreal. His name was Roberto Clemente, and he was really famous. And and he spoke very little English at that time, but I got his autograph on little pieces of white paper and, and things like that. And I started chasing these old baseball players and writing letters to people. And finally, I remembered that my grandfather had played with Ty Cobb in the 1890s. And, you know, a kid baseball team in a town called Royston, Georgia. And my grandfather was two years older than Ty Cobb. And when you're 14 or 15, two years is a long time. So the skinny little 14-year-old Ty Cobb looked up to my 16-year-old grandfather <laughs> and stuff like that. Uh, I remember I tried to find Ty Cobb. I wanted to write him a letter and get an autograph. And I remember I wrote to somebody, and, and I was so naive, I, I assumed that Ty Cobb had played for Detroit. So I went to the public library in Syracuse, and they had a whole wall that was phone books from different cities. I found the Detroit phone book, and I go down and I look up, and here's Ty Cobb. So I, I'm home free. I, <laughs> and I write a letter off to Ty Cobb, who's probably a plumber or a mailman or something in Detroit. He wrote me back. He said, I'm not the guy you're looking for. And I don't remember when it was, but at some point, I remember my parents took me to the Hall of Fame in Cooperstown, and I somehow managed to get a list of the addresses of all of the Hall of Fame players, who was alive. They didn't list the dead guys. Uh, so Babe Ruth wasn't on the list. Anyway, I wound up writing a letter to Ty Cobb and telling him all this stuff, that I thought he was wonderful and, and so forth, and how my grandfather had played with him and, and so forth, and that I had seen a picture in Life magazine that had my grandfather in the picture with Ty Cobb. And so Ty Cobb took my little kid letter and wrote me back, and he wrote all around the edges of the letter. It didn't. He he didn't get a fresh piece of paper. <laughs> he just and 
wrote it back. And strangely enough, this started a little pen pal relationship. And I, I wound up with five or six Ty Cobb letters. But it, it, was, it was fun because what was going on simultaneously, I was writing to other baseball players. I had gotten to be friends with this player who lived in the housing development where we were, Benny Zentera. And he had become famous in town because he was really, really old. He was 35, I think, and over the hill as a baseball player. And uh, I actually got to play catch with him once or twice. And I would use him as my excuse. I'd tell my parents, Benny thinks I should go out to the baseball game. And they would let me go. But I wasn't allowed to walk to MacArthur Stadium, even though it was just maybe 20 or 25 minutes away. By walking, I had to take a bus downtown and then take another bus back to the baseball field. Anyway, one thing led to another. We moved from that area to another part of town, and I kept writing to old baseball players, and many of whom responded. It was a simpler time, and some of them weren't old-time baseball players. Some of them were current players like Mickey Mantle. He sent something back and, and stuff like that, and I saved it all. But then I got to be a freshman in high school, and still all I wanted to do was be a baseball player and make the baseball team. And I was sure that if I could make the baseball team, I would be socially accepted in high school. I, I was much too skinny to be on the football team. I was about as tall as I am now, but probably weighed 12 pounds, and certainly wasn't cut out to be a bruising football player, and it came time for baseball tryouts, and this went on and on and on, and finally I made the first cut and I made the second cut, and then the the folks were really wicked about how they handled it at, at the end, in that they had all the guys who had made all the cuts wait in the hallway, and they started handing out uniforms, and they had 24 uniforms. And so I was sitting there hoping, 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 and finally the last uniform was given out and I didn't get it. And I'm, I'm terrible. And so I was pretty good in school, but that day I wasn't very good because clearly I couldn't count. I had counted what I thought was 24, but it is only 23, and I got the last uniform. Uh, as a freshman, which just didn't happen, and I was just so thrilled. And, um, I mean, the uniform, the hat barely fit. Everything was too short or too long or, or something, but it was the uniform, and I was going to be on the baseball team, and I was sure I was going to be socially accepted, which was probably not the case. But anyway, I had my uniform, and I was so happy, and I went home, and I told my mom and dad, look, I got the uniform. I'm, I'm a baseball player. I'm so cool. All my, my last two years in playing, you know, throwing the ball against the wall or something like that is, is behind me. I'm going to be a real baseball player on the high school team. And they were very thrilled for me. That was one thing that was very nice about my parents. They never, ever once came to one of my baseball games or basketball games or anything like that and yelled at me and encouraged me to do this or yelled at the coach or yelled at the umpire or did any of that. They let me alone and let me be a kid. And um, <laughs> I remember my mom saying, oh, by the way, you got 
a letter from one of those old baseball players today. And I went and looked at it, and here was a letter from Ty Cobb on the day I got my uniform. And you know what I did? Nothing. I never wrote him back because I am now a baseball player, and I don't have to. I don't have to worry about these old guys. And all of these adventures form the basis of this book, Sincerely Ty Cobb, the end of which, the, the last thing in the book, is me answering his letter. I was a little late. <laughs> and this book had such a long genesis, it just took forever to do, because I had originally written it in the early 90s. I had given it to somebody who had been my editor for my first Bernice Abbott book, who was Jacqueline Onassis. And Ms. Onassis thought it was a charming book, but wasn't long enough to be a real book. She was at Doubleday, and she was a a very serious, highly intelligent editor. And so I took some time to double the length of the book, finally got it done. But by that time, she had gotten sick, and the, the last thing that she needed to do was worry about, you know, a baseball book about a little kid. And so it sort of sat on the shelf for a, a long, long time. And I had done a book for TCU Press in Fort Worth, Texas, that was basically an American dream story uh, about my mother and father and how it really all worked out in the 30s and up to World War II and and, and beyond. It, It carried from the 20s through my father getting his first job after the war, which was in 1952 when the war ended. He had been a professional soldier all of his life. But when he came back from the war, he was so sick that he couldn't continue. So he went back to school at TCU. He he enrolled as a freshman at 38, which is sort of a a hard thing to do. He enrolled, I guess, in 1946 because they had kept him in the hospital for over a year. He went all the way through from his freshman to getting a doctorate. And he got a job in 1953. That's how we wound up in Syracuse. But in any event, TCU Press put out a book that was called Preserving Lives, which was basically about when the American dream could work for a very ordinary working-class couple and their one child. And the Ty Cobb book sort of picks up about the year that the other one ended, And TCU thought that was sweet, and so they made the book. And to show you how old the book was from the standpoint of, I mean, I'm looking across the table looking at it, and it has a design. The cover is designed by a man named Paul Bacon, and Paul Bacon is not only a a wonderful musician, but Paul was probably the foremost book cover designer there was. He was well known for what was known as the the big book look. He did over 7,000 dust jackets in the United States. He's the only person I know who had two dust jackets on the front page of the New York Times because he did Joe Heller's Catch-22. And when Joe Heller died, they used actually the design of Catch-22 on the front page of the Times. And then when Paul died, he got it on again. But he did so many books. He did Portnoy's Complaint. He did Hemingway's Islands in the Stream and 
Zen in the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, and on and on and on. And Paul never went to school, but was one of the smartest people I knew because, say he did 7,000 book covers, he would not do a book cover unless he read and understood the book. And so he had read and understood all those books, and he did this cover for me, the Ty Cobb cover, but he did it in the 90s. This book came out This book came out four or five years after Paul died, and this is how good he was. He did a cover for me on a book called The Ghost of Harlem, the American edition. He didn't do the French edition. The French edition came out first in the 90s, but the American edition came out in 2006, and it was, it was published by Vanderbilt University Press, and the Vanderbilt people called one day. They wanted to have a little advertising campaign, and they said that they really loved the dust jacket and everything, but they needed to know the font of the type that he had used on the front of the book because they wanted to match it to go in the ads and stuff. And I, I said, you don't understand. Everything on the front of that book was hand-lettered. That wasn't a font. That was him writing, him drawing all of those letters precisely and perfectly. And, oh, <laughs> but that's how good Paul Bacon was. And um, the interesting thing is that Paul Bacon not only did that, but he did very important record covers into the mid-50s for labels like Riverside and Blue Note and things like that because he was a jazz fan. And he eventually wandered into playing in a band. He didn't play an instrument per se. He played hot comb. He had a, <laughs> a comb like he'd do your hair with, and he would take a certain kind of cellophane from one of the cigarettes that he liked to use, and he would do that hum thing. And the, the record company that, that Andy Sordoni and I donated to WBIA, Carascuro, actually has a number of Paul Bacon covers that he created for the record company, but also has a, a record of him, I think it's called Girl Crazy, that he sings and plays on with his band. So it, it's full circle. He, he was a Renaissance guy who did record covers, played hot comb, <laughs> and book covers. Book covers were what paid the bills, and he, he was extraordinarily good at, at doing that. But sincerely, Ty Cobb was able to wrap up a, a lot of different things in that I used my rejection letter from Ms. Onassis as sort of an introduction. <laughs> I mean, she's telling how wonderful it is, but it's too short. And then the, the real introduction to the book was written by a, an old, old friend who I first knew her as a teenager. She was probably at least 18 or 19 when I met her, but went on to become a, a serious stage actress and TV actress and movie actress, and the last thing she did was direct plays and make a movie, direct a movie, not be in it, and her name was Margaret Witten, but she was a big baseball fan, and she played in all the Central Park Leagues, and um, I remember her turning up once with just an enormous shiner. She had gotten whacked in the face with a ball, but it went even further than that. Margaret played a character named Rachel Phelps in a movie called Major League, where she was the wicked owner of the Cleveland Indians who was scheming to make sure that they failed and didn't win the World Series or even get into the World Series. It was a movie about the Cleveland, whatever they are now, being inept. And 
I remember when she came back from shooting the movie, she had brought me a she brought me a Cleveland Indians warm up jacket as as a souvenir from my baseball days that I no longer played in. And she wrote the original introduction for the book in the '90s, thinking it was going to come out and it never did. And then about the same time, she married a, a fella named Warren Spector, who was a really good guy, still is a really good guy. But then, Marg. She only had one major failing, and that was, it was called three packs a day. She got bad galloping lung cancer and didn't make it. And around the time that the TCU people wanted to put the book out, the only objection that they had was that I used reproductions of baseball cards in the book. And there was no problem in using reproductions of a Ty Cobb baseball card from 1910. Piedmont cigarettes, who, who knows what that is? I don't think they exist any longer. I'm sure they don't exist any longer. But Topps bubblegum cards, I mean, for example, I recently got in a flyer from Heritage Auctions, and they have on the front of their booklet for their big baseball auction a reproduction of a 1952 Mickey Mantle Topps baseball card. It's the best-known copy that, that exists. And if you had to guess as to what the estimate is, I don't think that many people would guess that it was $10 million for one bubblegum card. And most of the cards that I was using in this book were from the years 1952 and 53, tops, which was the years when I was 12 and 13 and when I was gobbling these things up. And the the press, TCU, was concerned with copyright issues and stuff like that. So I did a little research and I had lunch with my friend Warren one day and told him how the book was coming. I was going to use his late wife's intro and so forth. And I said, and by the way, Warren, do you know Michael Eisner? Because Warren is in high finance and, and stuff like that, and no longer he, he's no longer doing that, but he, he was, once upon a time, he was the co-president of Bear Stearns. And he says, no, but a good pal of mine deals with him all the time. I said, would you forward to him a letter? And I had written a letter saying I wanted to use these bubblegum cards in this book about Ty Cobb. And I gave the letter to Warren. He gave it to his friend who passed it along to Mr. Eisner, who, strangely enough, I had photographed about six months earlier for a documentary about Broadway because Eisner, when he was head of Disney, you know, did Lion King and all that stuff and helped rebuild the Amsterdam Theater and things. And we had a go-ahead from Tops within about 48 hours. So that's the story about this book. But it's charming. Yeah, here's Mickey Mantle and Phil Rizzuto. I just remember my mother always thought Phil Rizzuto was the cutest boy on the lot. She just loved Phil Rizzuto. And here's the Roberto Clemente that I got in the in the lobby of the hotel. And here is Saya. And here's Eddie Walsh. This is the man you were talking about now. And Eddie Walsh wrote, uh, you know, this beautiful, with wonderful cursive and, and, and stuff. He had a wonderful handwriting. You weren't just writing about the weather. What kinds of things would be in some of these letters? Well, I mean, one of the more interesting ones was from a, a guy named Frankie Frisch. And here's the Frankie Frisch letter. And he says, Dear Harold, 
That's when a lot of people call me that. This is February 25th. It was nice to hear from you. You will have to excuse my being a little late in answering. The old Flash has been busy with his television show and doing a little writing. Now, for your questions you ask, before going into the questions you ask, I hope you will just play ball and enjoy it at your age. You will find, if you listen, you will pick up many great pointers from the baseball folks that you have contacts with, especially your coaches. If you can do one of three things, hit, run, or throw, and have a real desire and have some mentality and courage, you have a chance to be a big league ball player, <laughs> please. Uh, at your age, I wish you would remember this. Get out in the open as much as you can and participate in sports you like. And above all, don't forget those studies. There is one question you ask about hitting. Please remember this. It may be all right to copy somebody else's style of hitting, but in the long run, you will find you will be better off if you acquire your own natural, comfortable stance, and above all, be sure and have good tools. Don't forget, when you walk up to the plate, be sure you have a bat that feels comfortable in your hands. You speak of speed. You don't have to be the fastest man in the world to be a good base runner. A fellow that gets a good jump can do a great job in base stealing. So now, Harold, possibly I haven't answered all your questions the way you wanted them, but you know when you speak of records, you can find the old Flash's records in any of the baseball books. Now that the good old baseball weather is coming around, I hope to hear you will be leading your team in hitting. Good luck to you, and be a good boy. <laughs> it's a typewritten letter. And, I mean, it's, it's a serious letter. Hank O'Neill, writer, photographer, jazz producer, speaking about his engaging baseball story, Sincerely, Ty Cobb, a baseball memoir by Hank O'Neill, issued by TCU Press, recounting his correspondence as a lad with baseball great Ty Cobb and others, Tomorrow on Art Scene, we'll hear the words of Ty Cobb that he wrote to young Hank and more about Cobb's last letter to Hank that the boy left unanswered until this day and finally followed through. For more information on the web, prs.tcu.edu, and that's for TCU Press, prs.tcu.edu. E-D-U. The book is Sincerely Ty Cobb, a baseball memoir by Hank O'Neill, issued by TCU Press. And O'Neill is spelled O-apostrophe-N-E-A-L, O-apostrophe-N-E-A-L. The book is generously illustrated with wonderful baseball cards, as we heard, and so much more, especially the full five-page letter from Ty Cobb. To Hank O'Neill. Margaret Witten was a wise woman. That's the sense we have after finishing her foreword to the memoir of a longtime friend, Sincerely Ty Cobb, a baseball memoir by Hank O'Neill. Whitten was a noted actor, director, and baseball aficionado, and also a player of the game herself. Knowing Hank, 
Knowing human nature, good actor and director that she was, and of course knowing baseball as she did, Margaret Whitten asks key questions as we round the bases of the book before us, given the fact that young Hank will be telling us about baseball, about his pen pal, the baseball great Ty Cobb, and something about post-war America. Here's what Whitten asks. What in young Hank's carefully polite letter made Mr. Mean of baseball respond? Was it the mention of Hank's grandfather? Was it Ty Cobb trying to write the slurs of the sports writers? What in Hank's longing letter to a hero out of the hundreds he must have received made Cobb, the most demonically driven competitor, respond? Whitten also has developed keen insights into why young Hank might have picked up his pen then to write his baseball heroes and now to share this Tychobian-centered tale and come full circle, finally finishing the exchange. We're reminded of the unfinished games of his youth, broken off just like that, only to be picked up hours later, perhaps with a certain urgency, as night is falling. The most succinct way to say it is that Hank O'Neill's career has included the worlds of government, education, music, especially jazz, photography, and literature. He's a serious photographer who worked with the noted American photographer Bernice Abbott for nearly 20 years. But it's through music that we know him. O'Neill has built two recording studios over his lifetime, produced over 200 jazz LPs and CDs, and formed two record companies, one of which is Chiaroscuro, which he and his partner, Andrew Sordonli Doni, presented to WVIA. And we had a chance to talk baseball and much more during Hank O'Neill's most recent visit to the WVIA studios to sort through the voluminous Chiaroscuro archives. <laughs> 